Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guess lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hey, everybody. I am absolutely humbled by the guest that we have today. And I am grateful for how our guest came on today. So a huge heartfelt love of gratitude to the one and only Dr. Rocky Garcia and her fabulous, brilliant, and sassy self because Rocky, uh, Raquel, but Rocky, Rocky came on back the tail end of June for episode 190. And that's how we concluded Dysphagia Awareness Month. And she talked all about hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy and pediatric dysphagia. And She also shared this amazing book, and I have it right here, so I'm pulling it up. It's called HIE Lights of Hope. And when she shared her passion, she also informed us all about hope for HIE. And here we are a few months later, and y'all, we are blessed and lucky and fortunate to have none other than Betsy Pylon, the Executive Director for Hope for HIE. And I'm just... You know, I love a good backstory and you know, I love interprofessional practice through interprofessional education, but first and foremost, I love elevating 
caregiver voices, and I love a good love story. So that's kind of why we're here today. So Betsy, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yes. Okay. So how, tell me all the things, how, what is Hope for HIE? I'm going to get ahead of myself because I have like 4,000 <laughs> questions, but I love nonprofits. So yay, lay it on us, honey. <laughs> right. Well, I will, I guess, start in the beginning and my beginning. So my involvement with Hope for HIE started in May 2012, shortly after my son Max was born. So Max was my first child, had never heard of HIE. You know, like many out there thought that the NICU was for preemies and Max stopped moving when I was 37 weeks pregnant. And thankfully I had known about kick counts. So I did those. We had called into labor and delivery and they told me to do some kick counts. And if I wasn't comfortable with how that turned out to just head on in to get checked out. So I thankfully got in very quickly. Unfortunately, I didn't have any kicks that uh, were to be counted. And so we just thought we'd be that couple that goes in and got, you know, checked out and discharged and something we'd laugh about. But that was not our story. So my husband and I headed into labor and delivery. They hooked us up, you know, did an ultrasound, um, a BPP, biophysical profile, and noted that Max was not pre-breathing and that his heart rate variability was stable, but not moving and that he was in distress. So they needed to get him out. So this was definitely not the entrance to parenthood we expected. They prepped me very quickly for an emergency C-section. And as they were prepping me and the anesthesiologist came over, who was, I mean, I don't know if it's just like the, the trade <laughs> that they have to be calm people, but he did an excellent job of calming me down. And as they're going through their list of, you know, saying you might have to be intubated and like we could knock out your tooth accidentally and all the things they have to tell you, I had a panic attack, which actually got Max moving because of the adrenaline. So, okay. <laughs> which ended up being a blessing in disguise because he said, oh, look, I don't think we're, you know, and the, the ob Jin that was there said, I don't think we're going to have to put you under because he started moving. And we'll just get him out urgently. I'm like, okay, great. So, okay. <laughs> oh my God. It was, I mean, blessing in disguise, right? I was awake for his birth, which unfortunately many of our families are not because of the situation of needing to get them out quickly. And so Max was born at one in the morning. He let out a little cry. The neonatologist was in the room and intubated him almost, you know, as soon as they could get him over to the isolate. They knew he was going to you know, need that support. And then we began our journey into care. We were told about an hour after he was born and they had been giving him assessments that he qualified for a therapy called therapeutic hypothermia, which is newborn brain cooling. And we had no idea really what that meant. I had worked for the health system that I delivered into, and we were at the health system's community hospital. And I had actually by Providence, <laughs> had worked with the NICU team down at the main hospital in downtown Detroit to develop, because I was in marketing and communications, to develop a brochure that talked about the transfer protocol for other local community hospitals that would need a level four NICU. So I actually knew the, you know, I had met with the head of the NICU. I had met with nurses. I knew who was coming to get my kiddo. And so we were kind of like, we did not realize how serious it was. We just, you know, had implicit trust in the team to get him what he needed. So he was transferred. They were able to secure a bed for me. And so I was transferred down a few hours later. Thankfully, my parents are local. So at three in the morning when we called them and said, you know, this is what the situation is, they came over to be with me. My husband, Mike, followed Max's ambulance and my parents followed mine. And then Max began his, you know, descent into cooling upon arrival. And it was pretty scary. So we didn't know how scary, but we know that, you know, we were told later by the nurse practitioner in particular, they had a really hard time, you know, even keeping him on, you know, a ventilator. He had to have the higher level oscillator for the first 24 hours. And it was just a really, you know, scary, unknown time. And again, we didn't, you know, expect we, you know, any of this. So it was uh, definitely a shock that we were in that situation. And so then, you know, we went through our NICU course. He was in the NICU for about three weeks. We got discharged 
with not a lot of information. And, you know, at that time in particular, you know, we were told like, oh, don't go home and Google, you know, it can be scary and overwhelming. But also I said, well, are there other families you can connect us to? Because with HIE, there's such a broad range of potential outcomes. Yes. So, you know, and I was thinking like, there's got to be someone else that's gone through this. Like there's got to be a guide out there somewhere of what life might look like across the variety of outcomes. And so I am stubborn and went home and didn't listen. And thank goodness I didn't because mm-hmm. I combed through the internet, like, in a, you know, week after we got home and we're settled in and found three blogs of three different parents. And they all pointed me to a Facebook group called Hope for HIE. So that time there were about 200 to 300 families all around the world. So it was a pretty small group. And instantly I was like, oh my gosh, yes, these are my people. And everyone had a similar story of, you know, they were near or full term and, you know, like HIE, there was explained or not explained and, you know, don't go home and Google. And they went home and Googled and found each other on the internet. And so, you know, as someone that had worked in the health system and disseminating, you know, patient education materials and things like that and creating them, I thought, gosh, we've got to do better for families like this. This is not okay that there's this lack of information and lack of connection. And there's, you know, just a ton of resources for preemie families out there. But our population, you know, was was really left out. And so the founders of that group had intended to create a, a global nonprofit. They had started that process and then, you know, came up against some roadblocks So in 2013, um, a couple of us got together with the blessing of the group's founders and said, hey, can we get this going? And they said, yes, absolutely. Take it and run with it. So we worked on founding it as a nonprofit with such a global group. We had to find a place to, you know, (laughs) plant a flag in the ground. So I had a lot of really wonderful resources and friends who are very talented and volunteered their time to help us out. So we planted it officially in West Bloomfield, Michigan, of all places. (laughs) (laughs) I got to be honest, I haven't heard of that one. (laughs) I know, I know. And, you know, Metro Detroit. (laughs) This I have heard of. Yes, yes. Yes. And our goal really initially was just to let people know that we were out there and to, you know, to make the internet less scary. So to have a web presence, to you know, build out our social media so people could just find and connect because we found that just being a part of that peer support really made a huge difference. I mean, it made a huge difference for me personally. Time and time again, you know, people were saying like what a difference it made to them. You know, we started informal meetups and getting people together in person and connecting. And that was when really the magic kind of started moving for hope. So, you know, now it's 2022. We've been at this for you know, a few years now. I've been in the HIE community for 10 years, just over 10 years now. Max is now 10. And it's been quite a journey uh, and, and you know, constantly evolving. So, you know, the first couple of years of the foundation were, like I said, really focused on uh, building the framework. So getting some educational materials put together, getting some referral materials put together, trying to get those into NICUs. And then we just really have had this renaissance of growth since about 2019. And now we're involved in, you know, research and in, uh, you know, quality improvement project. In addition to, you know, the core of our organization, the heart of us is still very focused on support. So as a growing organization, we were able to bring on a social worker this year and run some social worker led support groups. And we're planning on offering, you know, we're able to offer starting next year, some, you know, counseling sessions with that social worker for those that need it as well. I mean, we, you know, have a robust peer support network. So we have peer-to-peer support that now connects over or almost 8,000 families today. And from all over the world, we have peer support mentor programs for newly diagnosed families. And then for, unfortunately, those that may lose their babies or children to HIE. And then foster ways for other people to connect in a myriad of ways, sibling support, you know, dads, pride parents, location-based, you know, whatever ways people need to connect on the topics and uh, ways that matter to them most. This is phenomenal. Okay. So many questions. I volunteer a lot with Feeding Matters, right? Their peer-to-peer for caregiver-to-caregiver mentorship is free. 
So as a clinician, if I'm picking up a patient, because I do community-based therapy, so I do in-home or like at a clinic. So I get the little ones after they've been discharged from the NICU, which is fantastic. But oftentimes when they're discharged from the NICU, you know, there's that sudden drop off in services. It's not necessarily automatically carried over to the state early intervention system and so forth and whatnot. So there's a lag time there, but am I allowed to refer a family or is it family referral back for caregiver support? How does that work? You absolutely can refer a family. We have so HIE is very complicated, as we know. Yes, and yes. so we launched this year, HIE Awareness Month is in April. And there's, again, we can talk for hours on all the things <laughs> that we have going on. But we launched in April a dedicated landing page that is a quick reference and quick referral, HIE.support. So basically, you just type into your web browser, HIE.support. That will has connections to our social worker who can do intakes. It has our you know links to our peer support network that's based on Facebook. There's applications to get in our peer support mentorship program, which is that one to one peer support mentoring. Again, it has some you know basic educational materials as well uh, linked there, so you can just as try again try to make it as easy and quick as possible to get people connected. Love this. Love this. Okay. So folks, if you're new to the world of early intervention, or if you're new to the world of pediatrics, one of the things historically that has not been taught well in the field of speech pathology is caregiver counseling and caregiver empowerment. So let's take it back to Maslow's scale of hierarchical needs. Us going in as clinicians or the infant being brought to us, or pick your setting, right? If that family is at a level of crisis, if they're in their trauma, if they're in their valley, then anything we attempt to do will be lost. We have to set them for success. As our sweet friend Aaron says, it's okay to sit with them in their grief. It's okay to sit with them in their anger. And our job is to empower. And this right here is an opportunity for empowerment. This is an opportunity to say, hey, I know this organization that has this unique skill set. Let me connect you and educate. So that's why once upon a time, we all had to study the Maslow scale of hierarchical need, folks. This is it in action. Okay. Also, if it's not too forward, how your your little one is only a couple months older than my oldest. So could I ask how y'all are doing and the joy and <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So Max is 10. Max, which is unbelievable, he starts fifth grade this year, which wow. it's just unreal. He, I like to say, is living his best life every day. So is he without impact from HIE? No. Does he live yeah. an incredible life? Yes. So Max, you know, and we can go back, we'll go back to the NICU. So Max, you know, was able to feed orally beginning after he rewarmed. And he was a sluggish feeder, but never needed a feeding tube of any type, either NG or otherwise. So we were very fortunate that he was able to it was a stressful time. I mean, certainly I, I can't think of anything more stressful for myself or our family is then, you know, like figuring out feeding things. And, and if your child does have some impacts, you know, neurologically that impact feeding, it's, you know, it's very stressful. So, you know, Max was the, the baby that met like the minimum feeds that they wanted him to do for a very long time. <laughs> And so we got discharged. He was not on any, you know, any supports other than, you know, it's pretty standard, although that's, this is changing as well. You know, when you talk about seizures, which HIE is the leading cause of neonatal seizures, typically babies are either bolused on a anticonvulsant like phenobarbital, or now they're like, so Max didn't have any clinical seizures on his EEG or anything when he was in the NICU. Now, 10 years later, the research 
has come such a long way that he probably would have been weaned off that medication before discharge. Now, you know, when with him, he was weaned off by three months. But, you know, his feeding difficulties, he was just always a sluggish feeder. He wasn't very good with breastfeeding. So he just, you know, pumped and fed for a very long time. You know, and that was really, you know, his his big thing. He was slower with gross motor development. He has microcephaly, which is just a, you know, a small head as a result of his HIE. <laughs> so which again is kind of something that I think takes parents by surprise in this journey. And so, you know, and he has a vision impairment. He is mobile. He started walking when he was three without assistance. He uses AFOs to this day, so orthotics. He has mild spastic diplegic cerebral palsy. He does have a vision impairment where he does not he did not develop depth perception. So he learns to navigate his world. And so new environments are a little tricky, but once he learns them, he's good with steps and all of that. And he's doing great in school. He is at grade level and everything. He does have an IEP. His supports and services, you know, are exceptional and help him you know, get where he needs to be. And he, outside of the medical side of things, you know, he loves basketball. He loves uh, superheroes. He loves Metallica. (laughs) (laughs) I broke his heart yesterday, though. I asked him, you know, I was playing a song on our our Alexa or whatever. And he's like, oh, this is old music. He's like, I want to play Metallica. I said, I hate to break it to you, this kiddo, but I said, Metallica is old music. Uh-huh. He's like, what do you mean? And I said, Metallica's <laughs> been around as long as I have in the world. And uh-huh. he was devastated. So, because Metallica is his very favorite and he thought that they were new. So, you know. Uh, that's um, Him and my goose danger would get along <laughs> great. My goose loves Led Zeppelin. Like he loves Led Zeppelin. And like, okay, so mommy listens to K-Love Christian radio station and then like rotates it out with like Dropkick Murphys uh-huh. and like, you know, Irish punk rock. And my husband is like all over the place, but Led Zeppelin is his jams. And he was like, they're so cool. And my mother-in-law was like, you know, I saw them live like back in the day. So she now walks on water. <laughs> I'm like, that's amazing. Also, was it a cortical vision impairment? My older brother-in-law has microcephaly, CP, cortical vision, ASD, and a whole host. So So he's never been diagnosed with CVI. We were told that it was delayed visual maturation. Is it on the spectrum of CVI? It could be. He just hasn't been tested for that. You know, he does have a low vision consultant that works with him to set up, you know, the classroom environment, make sure he has all materials, you know, enlarged a little bit and set up for his success with school. You know, so we just haven't officially got him tested, but CVI obviously is very, very common with HIE. It's one of the leading causes as well. So it wouldn't be surprising if, you know, he had like uh, some, you know, if he was on the spectrum of that as well. Yes. But yeah, so that's, you know, it's it's a part of his life. And, you know, like I said, we, you know, he falls probably a little bit more because of the vision than the CP. And so we just, you know, do our best to help him acclimate to those environments and be cognizant of, but he's a 10-year-old boy. So he also wants to, you know, run and do all the things. Um, so, <laughs> so it's a balance. <laughs> There's something horrifying that happens between nine and 10. And it's like all of a sudden they smell and like, I, I buy deodorant for goose and like, but like, he's just funky. Like I love him goose. If you're listening, mommy loves you very, very much. This will pass. I promise Bubby. And like two or three years, just don't transition to the Axe body spray. Okay. Let's skip that. (laughs) Also, if you're a mom and you have a son in that body spray stage, oh, more power to you, love. (laughs) Okay. So on that note, folks, if you're listening, some of the things that they're talking, we're talking about, because we do, Betsy, we do have like clinicians that aren't familiar with some of the terminology that we like threw around. A CVI is a cortical vision impairment. Oftentimes those of us in the community assume that when a child is discharged from the NICU, that they're coming home with all known potential outcomes and etiologies diagnosed. However, that is honest to goodness, like probably the opposite of what happens, right? So it's on 
the community-based clinician to empower the caregivers to know what signs and symptoms to look for. So if you have an infant and you're working on those initial first feeds and you notice a lot of startle reflex engagement when a bottle breast or nipple is placed or a spoon is presented, those are sometimes some of the first red flags that there's a field of vision loss. And a cortical vision impairment is not the same as nearsighted or farsightedness. This is a um, occipital lobe optic nerve um, component that has been compromised or did not fully develop or was damaged due to all of the above. Um, it could be absence of cortical structures, a bleed in the cortical structures, um, uh, uh, picket. There's there's so many potential outcomes. Um, but that's one of the things that we're talking about. But um, before we go too far down that one rabbit hole, because I would go do that with my <laughs> ADD, um, can, um, let's talk about what is HIE and how that can influence feeding and swallowing. Yes. So HIE stands, as you mentioned before, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. So, you know, part of what we do as an organization is try to help families understand these complex medical terms because it's important that they learn them and it's important that clinicians use them as well because sometimes that can be a barrier to connection and um, care and education. But basically hypoxic, so, you know, lack of oxygen, ischemic, restricted blood flow, encephalopathy impacting the brain. So uh, neonatal HIE uh, occurs in about two to three per thousand live births in developed countries. In underdeveloped countries, it can be upwards of 20 per thousand live births. It's crazy. And it can also have other names like perinatal asphyxia or, or birth asphyxia or neonatal encephalopathy. You know, there's some, some complications that we can talk about with why HIE sometimes is not named. But essentially, it is the largest type of neonatal encephalopathy out there. So, and it is something that has a myriad of causes. The majority cannot be prevented. Placental issues, cord compression, cord entanglement, you know, things like that. So we see a lot of cord, a lot of placental issues. You know, it can happen during delivery. And so it is something that, you know, many are at risk for. So placental abruption is a cause. Uterine rupture is a cause. So, you know, we see just a, a lot of, you know, if <laughs> it's like the, if anything can go wrong, will go wrong, sort of with birth, sometimes can end in HIE. So, but again, it has a wide range of outcomes. So it's staged according to the Sarnat scale, which was developed in the 70s. So it's at, so the Sarnat scale has actually been around for a while. But the therapeutics really did not become effective until cooling, which we'll get into as well, I'm sure. But yeah, basically a, a myriad of causes. There's three different stages, mild, moderate, severe. And most of the therapeutic research and therapeutic options have been available for moderate to severe, not necessarily for mild, but that's changing as well. And a whole host of outcomes ranging from very mildly affected to loss of life and anything and everything in between. Any way uh, someone can be affected with a body system could occur with HIE. So, I mean, the most common I, the the very most common, I mentioned neonatal seizures, that can also be a lifelong epilepsy. And that can also occur later on in childhood. Max actually did not, like I said, develop neonatal seizures. Likely because he was on phenobarb, it was suppressed, uh, but he did go on to develop epilepsy at age eight. So and he's not alone. There's, you know, so there's a lot of long-term outcome data that that is now being tracked. Uh, we've seen it now in our community for quite a while of the different waves of impacts that can come up for kids that, you know, might get signed off at age two or age three with early intervention or with even outpatient developmental clinics. And then they come back, families come back at, you know, school age and see learning and attention issues and behavioral concerns and there's a higher incidence of autism and 
you know, things like that. So in epilepsy, the second, say most common diagnosis is cerebral palsy because it impacts the brain. It can impact, you know, motor function, impact fine and gross motor, obviously speech swallowing, you know, all the oral motor, you know, issues that can come from cerebral palsy and impact speech and swallowing. So obviously feeding therapy is a big one for our families. <laughs> speech yes, therapy. It is. Yep, yep. <laughs> and folks, this does not need non-speech oral motor exercises because we know the evidence does not support that utilization. Thank you again, Dr. Georgia Melandrecki and the Purdue IE Lab and Dysphagia Research Society and current evidence-based practice. Yes, sorry. <laughs> you're good. You're good. I love it. Keep throwing it in. Um, so for our families in particular, you know, and I know that I'm sure Rocky spoke about this as well. There is such um, a need for earlier intervention in the NICU course uh, to get, you know, to improve those outcomes for these babies um, in particular, because, um, and, you know, like there's even research and there's another paper that just came out last week that was published from Italy. Wait, can we just acknowledge the enthusiasm in your voice when you said, and there's another paper. Like, I love that because like, I'm like, Oh, did you see the new research article? And like, your soul's joy would just like hit mine. So like, yeah, continue research from Italy. I'm with you. Yeah. So, you know, we're, as an organization, obviously patient advocacy is a huge part of what we do. And so, you know, when another paper comes out about feed the babies, we're like, yes, let's do this, you know? So (laughs) in showing that, you know, like forever they've been restricted with cooling. So, you know, and I don't know if this is a good juncture to talk a little bit about cooling. Go. Yes. Yes. Well, we'll back up on that for a moment, but basically, so the, gold standard of therapeutic offering right now for HIE is therapeutic hypothermia, where you cool a baby down to about 91 degrees Fahrenheit for 72 hours. You slowly, you know, you slowly cool them down. You slowly rewarm over 12 hours each time. And traditionally they withheld, you know, babies were NPO like across the board, no matter what their vitals were like, what their stability was like, NPO gold standard. And no touch, no holding, no nothing during that because you, you know, you want to keep a consistent temperature for the cooling to work. And cooling has been shown to reduce death and disability. And I think it's important that we talk about those two things because it's not a cure, but it is the best that we have to improve outcomes right now for HIE. And it's great. It it was a game changer and has been a game changer. But there's obviously much more we need to do because, you know, that when you look at that, it's like, yes, we're saving more babies. That is very important. What are their outcomes like? Right. And how can we continue to improve the outcomes within this context right now as other therapeutics come online? Right. So the latest research, there was one, I believe it was last year that was published in The Lancet, which was a um, meta-analysis from the UK of like all these cohorts of kids of in the NICU and showed that there was no adverse effects. There was no increase of neck. There was no increase of, you know, anything else of babies that showed stability to introduce trophic feeds. So that was huge. And this is like something that we just keep trying to talk about more and more. And so the secondary paper or new paper, I guess I'll be very respectful to the authors because I respect that they did the work as well out of Italy shows the same thing, like feed the babies. Like there's no, you know, like if they're obviously there's, you know, clinical indicators, if they are not hemodynamically stable and things like that, maybe you want to take a look at it. And, you know, and there's indicators of who would be the best, you know, to introduce feeds to versus not. And so But they see that the fed babies during hypothermia decrease their NICU stays, which we know is important because we know that getting babies home helps improve outcomes. They're less likely to get infections. They're less likely to, you know, like they're more likely to, you know, increase bonding in that maternal bond. 
And it's the same thing with holding, you know, there, there have been holding studies now that, you know, like they are able to show Alexa Craig, who's at a main medical center. She's doing amazing work. She's a, wait, what is her name? Alexa Craig. She's a neonatal neurologist and pediatric neurologist. And she has done her study showed they, they took cortisol levels and they tracked the cortisol levels of mothers and babies when they were held versus not held. And no surprise, the cortisol levels were lower for the, for the babies that were stable enough to be held during cooling and safely during cooling. And the cortisol levels dropped for mom and baby. And of course, they were higher for those that were not. So again, that marker allows us to show that those babies also, they also tracked, they also had less NICU stays, <laughs> you know, like or less length of stay. So, so we're looking at these things now where hopefully standard of care is moving towards, you know, feeding the babies earlier, holding babies earlier. And as therapists, you know, we asked this, I spoke at the, and I met Rocky in person. It was amazing. Um, I spoke with someone that she works with as well, Dr. Monica Royo down at Joe DiMaggio Children's, who's a pediatric neurologist, about introducing therapies earlier as well in the course. And we asked the poll, you know, at the NAMP conference about when, you know, what is your standard, what is your protocol at your NICU for getting therapists involved earlier during cooling? And it just, there is, there really doesn't seem to be, you know, a standard. And a lot of people won't even put the orders in until after babies are rewarmed, you know? And so that you're missing out on potentially five days, which is huge to see. Those are their first reflexes. Yes. Like, that's like, I can't even fathom. Okay, you just gave me a couple of different ideas on how we could engage in improved dissemination of information and research. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, so that's something that, you know, and this was like, it was such a wonderful opportunity. Everyone was so eager to talk about, you know, how they could go back to their NICUs and say, hey, how can we do this? How can we get involved earlier? So that way we can start on these, you know, working with these babies and families, you know, earlier in the course and building those relationships and, you know, seeing how this can improve outcomes. So it's really, really exciting to be where we are right now because I, you know, as a parent, uh, you know, like my, my experience now 10 years ago and, and so much has changed in 10 years, but, you know, it still continues to be. That therapists, you know, the NICU therapists, unless you're respiratory, you know, are thought of a, definitely more as an afterthought as opposed to an integrated day one team member, you know. I mean, heavens to Betsy's in the community, I get a script and I'm happy if it says peds dysphagia. Right. Like I can't tell you how many times I get one that says peds aphasia, which is a word retrieval difficulty for patients post CPA. Yes. And like yes. I'm not working on anomia with like, a four week old, you know, and that's literally it. I mean, case in point, yesterday I went in with, and did an eval on a little one, and I saw signs and symptoms of three incidents of five to nine seconds in duration of focal seizures. Oh, by the way, he's two and a half. And this is the first time he's been referred to early intervention. And I'm like, has your doctor brought up, like, have we talked about this? Because, you know, all I have is a script and you know, and I know that all of that seizure activity is causing trauma to the brain. Yes. And she was like, well, I think we have a referral to neurology. And I'm like, Oy like, this is, this is not okay. And, but it's, Y'all, this is where we're at. So we have to advocate for improved outcomes. Okay, so we have to have a sidebar because I have an idea, but we'll do that afterwards. So folks, stay tuned for Squirrel 1180 Gabillion. Okay, all right. When you're at the NAMP conference, can you explain what that is? Because I'm only familiar with it in the periphery because of 
Casey Lewis and Rocky Garcia and their NICU yeah. work, but can you talk about what that is? Absolutely. So that's a neo, uh, the National Association for Neonatal Therapists. And so it is the premier organization connecting neonatal therapists, moving forward the field and uh, looking at, you know, evidence-based practice, moving forward standards of care. It's led by Sue Ludwig, who is a phenomenal advocate in this space. She is the founder of NANT. Um, she's a good one to follow as well. She actually just published a book. Like she's phenomenal. She's like the light and sunshine of the world. <laughs> she has an OT by trade, um, a neonatal OT and has done this work for several decades, um, building NANT. And the conference is, I've been to several conferences before in the neonatal space. And I have to say NANT was one of the most energized, amazing, heart-filled conferences I've been to. There's something very different about therapists that is just so wonderful to be around. Um, <laughs> and just the energy, kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, the collaboration, the fun, you know, um, and, and really, you know, neonatal therapists are, you know, for, as you know, in the outpatient setting, they are the ones that set the tone in the relationships that could be with these families forever, for their child's childhood and into adulthood. Uh, for many of our kids, obviously, they will be in therapies long, long term. And so getting those relationships and that understanding of the benefits of therapy in the beginning, getting those referrals are, as you said, you know, we see it all the time too, these families that slip through the cracks. We want to stop yes. that from all ends, from the from the therapeutic angle, from, you know, the clinician educational angle, from the patient advocacy angle, you know, we are trying to stop these families from slipping through the cracks. So when they do find us, you know, from frantically searching and go, wow, I didn't know that this, you know, why didn't I know about this sooner? You know, we know, we say this all the time, time is brain. And, yes. you know, it's not... We don't want to, you know, that, that can be a lot of pressure on families. So we don't necessarily like, you know, on the family side, we try to let them know that neuroplasticity is a lifelong event um, and possibility. But we do know that the earlier you, it's the research is there. We know this. The earlier you intervene and more consistently you intervene, the better the outcomes. So, you know, there's so many things that when we talk about quality improvement, Communication improvement is a huge one. And so, you know, when we spoke to um, Dr. Arroyo and I spoke to, um, you know, to the, the therapists at the NAMP conference and the conversations we had were, you know, they're like, you know, some of them were sharing with us what we already know is some, because of many different reasons, which I think are all not great ones. Uh, clinicians are nervous to um, even name HIE. And so because they're, if you go to Google and why, you know, people didn't want to say it for so long. Um, unfortunately, there is an elephant in the room where there is a certain percentage that may have a medical legal uh, implication from causation. Now that doesn't impact, you know, so that doesn't impact the care in the NICU because this is after the fact, Right. People are taking care of if there was something that could have been prevented or went wrong that could have been prevented. You're talking, you're talking birth trauma. Yes. Yep. And so a yeah. lot of our families, like the, and where we, again, lots of work to do, never a shortage. Um, <laughs> yes, you know, we have yes, these lovely is. risk management departments and bless them for all the hard work that they do that, you know, that is important work, but they've scared these clinicians from even naming a clinical diagnosis, which is a key part of this child's medical information. And they withhold that on the advice of risk management sometimes, which is wrong. <laughs> like, so, you know, and, and people know this, like the, the therapists, you know, openly said that they're like, what do we do to prevent, you know, to open this, this conversation in a way that is, that, keeps us away from the causation part and just talks about getting them educated and, and accurate information. And everyone deserves that. That's an ethical thing, right? Like you don't withhold yes. medical information. That's a, that's, 
you get in trouble for that, except for the, in this case, right? <laughs> like, no, folks, it is literally in our code of ethics to code to the highest level of specificity. And you, so on a clinical end, if you're treating a child that has an oropharyngeal dysphagia and it's secondary to HIE, then you have to start at the beginning and code backwards. You have to code R1312, which is the dysphagia. If you're in the NICU, it could be acute pediatric feeding disorder, which is R63.31 or 32. I'm rusty. I'd have to have it. And then code the causal factor. If it's an intraventricular hemorrhage, if it's hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, we have to code that. And that's our legal, ethical responsibility. And if your hands are being tied, then this is where you advocate. And also you advocate within your institution, within your company. And that's why you have a state association and Typically, there's somebody on there called the VP of Clinical and Professional Affairs or VP of Governmental Affairs. Those would be your liaisons that you can reach out to. And behind the scenes, they can network with different associations, maybe your hospital association to raise awareness, maybe your Department of Health and Human Services. I mean, these are all things I've seen in action occur for the betterment of the patients that we're called to serve. But you need to know what you're legally and ethically responsible for doing. So, sorry. Yes, just had to get a couple pointers there. That's yes. great. No, I mean, I feel like this is, you know, I mean, for me, I have always enjoyed having difficult conversations. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I, if there's a barrier, let's talk about it and break it down. You know, that's, yes. that's what it comes down to. And so, you know, it's, we know that that has been a barrier to care. And so let's find a better way of communicating. So that's, you know, part of the work we've been doing too is, you know, working with clinicians and speaking, um, you know, at different conferences and things to give people ideas of how to even foster these, you know, conversations in a way that is, you know, that is the right thing to do by the family, by the child, and, you know, within the framework of the organizations they work in. So, uh, so that is, you know, something that continues, it has improved significantly over the years. Um, but it is still a, a mountain that we are, you know, tackling step by step. <laughs> so, but it's okay. so wonderful when we can do it together. So I have, I have a dream and I'm going to put it into the universe because this is a patient safety issue. If we are all identifying, I just rubbed my eye makeup off. I can't believe that because I was thinking too hard and I rubbed my makeup off. That's great. If we're all identifying these point of system failures, then, and it varies greatly by state by state and yo, I get it. States rights, but patient rights, in my opinion, trump that. And if we're seeing this, then wouldn't it be awesome to have a federal policy such that when a patient discharges, that there are federal guidelines in place for these little ones that are medically fragile on the pertinent information that immediately gets sent over to the state EI system so that it's not following into an abyss. And may and folks, if you're listening and you have this capability to join in on this fight, I would suggest a list of current medications, a list of current known medical etiologies, a list of, excuse me, therapeutic restrictions, because some of our babies, they come out and they've had a heart transplant, they've had surgery, they they can't do certain activities for endurance because maybe they have congestive heart failure. I'm just thinking of like my cardiac babies because oftentimes they have restrictions, right? As such, they should. And a copy of the most recent discharge records, like this is what happened. What if in a perfect world, all of that information immediately went from the NICU straight to the state EI system and the EI system had a document that physicians and allied health members and the service coordinators could access. Like that seems so freaking obvious, but the fact that we haven't gotten that up to snuff. So how do we go about doing that, Betsy? 
<laughs> well, <laughs> I think this is when we talk about federal EMR, right? So, um, you know, that certainly, and, you know, I think we're moving towards that. I think there's some good things. I mean, you know, obviously our world has been reformed through this pandemic, right? Yes, ma'am, it has. (laughs) To say the very (laughs) least, right? Um, Uh But some of the good things that have come out of that are the, you know, the acceleration of interoperability with EMR. Um, And, uh, you know, it's great. So, you know, we are, well, so I have a medically complex child, you know, despite his again, doing very well <laughs> in life. He, he's still high, you know, he's still high maintenance. Um, so we are my chart users, uh, like super users and insurance super users and navigators. Um, and, you know, the ability to, you know, they got their COVID shots at CVS and it's in their my chart, you know, like yes. that is fantastic. Like why, why, why did we do that before? Like yeah, you know, for anything for, you know, like that should all feed with that. Um, he had surgery at a different health system. Now those, my charts are connected so I can go back and forth between and make sure that, you know, all of that's, you know, his pediatrician has access to all of that. Why did that not exist before? You know? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we love in this country, obviously, like, there's a lot of feelings about a lot of things. But, you know, the the benefits of having that interoperability, at the very least, outweigh, you know, any sort of political whatever garbage that is out there, because we know, as the users of this on the patient and provider side, how incredibly helpful it is for the optimal care to have access to that information. You know, families now, I mean, even, you know, we, we see this, it's, you know, one of the things about EMR, like your discharge summary has all of those coded diagnoses on there before it didn't, they had to request medical record records, right? So families now are saying, what is this hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy thing that no one told me about during the past three weeks of my child's NICU stay? What is that? And then they're nervous to ask about it. So they go to Google and they find us, you know? (laughs) Like, but they, you know, so it's improved in that way, but it needs to, you know, they shouldn't be hearing about it first in the discharge summary. They need to be hearing about it at point of diagnosis, you know? So that's, that's part of it too. But that's, I mean, the, the possibility for improving communication and, and getting that information. So you as an outpatient provider can, can know that, that, you know, birth history and medical history of your patient allows you to obviously give optimal care. It allows families to get optimal care. And we know that that's going to improve outcomes again. So that's, you know, that is definitely, you know, anything that <laughs> that is out there legislatively that they're pushing to have more of this interoperability, let's do it. You know, let's sign on to that. So we do that as an organization all the time. Um, you know, we are a part of many different collectives that have these sign on letters to advocate, you know, for these, um, you know, this infrastructure to build. Um, and, and I, I, I would say it's a positive thing to come out of the, you know, the pandemic is that we are moving forward in such a much better way, um, of that information share. So I'm thinking big picture, we would have to pull, ASHA, AOTA, the Pediatricians Association, y'all, Nant, any neonatology association, and federally DOE together yeah. to like create a policy. But like I could actually see that. I mean, all good things come to those who wait, but also those who advocate. So, well, and there are some, there is, there is some federal, uh, you know, f- I think it was a, there's some federal advocacy that has been done for preemies. So now this is another, you know, as we're in, uh, you know, NICU awareness month um, and talking in, in other circles as well about equity and NICU representation, you know, like the, the preemie forces again came together and said, we need a better pipeline for, you know, into early intervention. And they should be guaranteed to, if you're a preemie, you're guaranteed to be an EI for three years. Right. You know, we don't have that for all kids at risk. Like, I no. would like to make the case that all HIE kids should be as well because, you know, in changing those follow-up protocols, because we have these kids that are in and out, like they'll spurt ahead in one thing and then, you know, like 
then then they have to get re-enrolled because because they'll get out of it, you know, or by six months, they're like, oh, they're fine, you know, and then they're not fine by 18 months. So it's, you know, there's just a whole lot of variability with the EI programs too, you know, in this country. It, I mean, with even, you know, I'm in Michigan, it varies, you know, ours is administered on the school district level, others by the county level. It just, you know, it really depends on where you live um, and who qualifies. And so, you know, we need to be any child that's at risk from the NICU of neurodevelopmental disorders of any kind need to be tracked, period. Right. So that's, that's where I'd like to see some of these other initiatives be more inclusive of who that impacts, you know? So it's not just the preemies. (laughs) It's, it's, if we're going, you know, forward with neonatology and, and, and all these, providers from the NICU forward, you know, into neurodevelopmental land, that needs to include all that are impacted by that. The heart kids as well, you know, that are, it's, 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 it's a lot more. I mean, and again, that's resource uh, dependent, um, but there's a lot of room for improvement for sure. Mm -hmm. I love you. You're amazing. (laughs) (laughs) This is wonderful. Okay. All right. Okay. I, we have like five minutes left and I do need to get circle back around to like how we can like support, you know, HIE and hope for HIE. But I mean, what can you talk to us about when we first start that early intervention walk, assuming that everything happens smoothly, oftentimes we're in there at the start and we don't get to see the long-term outcomes and the long-term prognosis. But what are potential outcomes for down the line? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, again, it's anywhere from, and and the brain is just so wild because every HIE child is going to have, even if they have a similar MRI, you know, picture of how they were impacted on an MRI, they're going to all, every single brain is going to um, repair or move forward in a different way, regardless of therapies, regard, you know, it's just, it's wild. So you have such a, a wide range of outcomes, but, um, you know, we, we see kids at, you know, so Max's peers that are more impacted from HIE, you know, at age 10, they're going into fifth grade as well. A lot of them have AEC, you know, so getting that communication going earlier is so important. The emphasis used to be solely on mobility, 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 but kids need to communicate. So find a way to communicate. So, you know, like when we move from the, the swallowing and feeding to communication, you know, and, and, and all of them are important, you know, um, making sure that families, because we know as some of these kids grow, um, if they do struggle with feeding, that sometimes a G-tube is going to make their lives better for everyone. That's going to, that actually improves quality of life for many because they're not spending hours a day trying to feed their kids and they can spend those hours a day on AAC and giving them a means to communicate and doing fun things as a family, you know? Yes. Okay. Folks on that note. Yes. The second there is, we, uh, so excited. Words are hard. We presume competence. We do not need to start with antiquated methodology with taking nouns and printing them on pictures and then having a child pick between two nouns. Once you know better, do better. You can utilize communication devices and set up free trials for your patients and get a free long-term loan for yourself to bring in speech-generating functional communication devices in early intervention. I have worked with it with little ones as young developmentally as nine and 10 months of age. Okay. And there are entire organizations such as control bionics and talk to me technologies, and they do not pay me to give their names. I just love them that will guide you through every step of the process. And there is no out-of-pocket expense to the families because they work with the families to cover, get everything covered by insurance. So Please, please, please reach out to those organizations and empower these caregivers and empower these little ones to 
thoroughly enjoy their lives. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Big thing. So our mission at Hope for HIE is to improve the quality of life for children and families impacted by HIE. So quality of life, again, is subjective, but it also does not have to be like we want to make sure that kids are kids and therapy is going to be an important part of their life for, you know, for, for many of them forever. Um, but what does that mean and how we can, you know, how can we work together to make sure that these families and these kids get that chance to reach their potential? I love that. The, you know, we talk about presuming competence all the time. Um, and, you know, there's a, another, you know, when we talk about peers, Max, you know, Max has a peer who is, has spastic quad CP, nonverbal, um, you know, and he's been, uh, you know, he's on grade level with everything. He, um, you know, has been in a Janet inclusion setting since the get go. His mom has flown around the world to, you know, to start him on AAC early when, you know, which is really kind of pioneering because he's the same age. So 10 years ago, this really wasn't happening like it is today. The, yeah. the field has just soared and continues to. Um, and so, you know, like, and he's, he loves Star Wars and living his best life. You know, he's living his best life, right? And it looks very different than Max's life, but it's awesome. You know, and he has friends and he's going to school and, you know, he's able to articulate through his AAC, his frustrations as well. So he's seen, you know, a therapist because to work out his frustrations with, you know, dealing with his disability as well, you know, yes. which other people would think. Oh, well, that's not possible. It's absolutely possible. And he's getting the support to, you know, to do whatever he wants to do in his life. And it's so important. And that's that. And that came from a team thought and mentality with a very passionate parent <laughs> and very passionate clinicians who believed in his potential. Yes. So, okay. Yep. Yeah. There's that. Yeah. <laughs> Clap. I got nothing. I'm, I'm, this is, this is why we do the thing that we do. Yes. Okay. As my grandma says, the one that raised me, sometimes families have a little bit of love money left over at the end of the month. So if anybody's got a little bit of love money, how, how can they support Hope for HIE? What can we do? Where can they find you? So um, I mentioned earlier, HIE debt support is a way that you can um, if you have someone to refer in, a family to refer in, you can also just go to our main website, which is hopeforhie.org. And, um, you know, we're across social media, across as many platforms, I think, as possible, um, at Hope for HIE. So <laughs> we have that consistently across the board. You know, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what you're doing um, and, and how we can uh, better collaborate as an organization um, we do obviously gratefully and graciously accept, um, you know, support of many different types for our support programming and other organizational initiatives. Um, and you can read all about that on our website. Um, and, you know, we have like a NICU and PICU support uh, care package program, um, hospitalization support, loss support, all of that um, that is funded directly by our donors. So, um, you know, we are are, are grateful for any and all support, even just, you know, following our social media, sharing it again with families. That's what we want the most is to have people connect and know they're not alone. Yes. Excellent. Betsy, thank you. Thank you so much for the work that y'all are doing on behalf of our families and our patients. Rocky, I am in awe. I am an awe, sweet friend of the beautiful people that you bring together so that we can raise awareness and put joy and hope and light in this world. So thank you for being the best of us. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. 
change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right, so I receive compensation for first bite presentations as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.